Well, I'm going to start a new series tonight. It's going to take us about seven or eight weeks to walk through. And let me tell you the genesis of this series. It's, it's kind of funny. I, I was writing a message uh, that I was going to do, just kind of a standalone message, because I was kind of debating on what I was going to do next on Wednesday nights. We just finished How Great Is Our God, which was a study on Psalm 145. So I was kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I was going to just preach a kind of a standalone message, things I'd been thinking about, one to share with you, and then get into the next series. And so I began to write down my notes for this standalone message, just, you know, one night message. And I began to write down some points and some Bible verses and some thoughts and some sentences. And I just kept writing and kept writing it. What? Typing. Kept typing and kept typing and typing and kept typing. And before I knew it, I said, well, there's no way I can preach this in one, one week. And then I said, well, you know what? I've got seven points. This, this is a series. And so, and so what was once a, a one night sermon is now a seven week series. Okay. Uh, aren't you glad I didn't try to do it all in one night? Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to do this, jump in here. There's just so many, just so much neat stuff as I studied that I, I just, I didn't want to cut anything down. I just wanted to share this with you and just take our time. And so the title of this series is Consider Jesus, the Many Facets of Christ. Consider Jesus, the Many Facets of Christ. And tonight we're going to talk about uh, Jesus being the lion and the lamb. But before we get into that, I want to just kind of talk about the, the thought behind this series, Consider Jesus, the Many Facets of Christ. If you look down your notes, I have some kind of opening thoughts for you to, to follow. That first sentence is, we need to consistently consider Jesus. We need to consistently consider Jesus. Why? Well, the Bible tells us to. Look what it says over in Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 1, the writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, he's talking to Christians here. Notice he calls them holy brothers. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, look what he says, consider Jesus. That word consider there in the original language means to, to give careful thought to. To, to, to give consideration to. So he's saying give careful thought to, give, give careful consideration to the person, the work of Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus. That little phrase is where I got the name for this study. Consider Jesus, who, he says, is the apostle and high priest of our confession. So the Bible tells us that we are to consider Jesus. Now, why, as Christians, do we need to think about to consider carefully the person and the work of Jesus Christ? Why is it important that we think about the multifaceted ministry of Jesus. Well, let me give you three reasons. Number one, so we can marvel at him. So we can marvel at him. You know as well as I do that there are times in life when you just get busy or you're going through a tough time or you just get distracted by living and, and your worship can grow cold and lifeless, and you find yourself just going through the motions, and you come on a Sunday morning, and we're singing these great songs about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're in the Word of God, and you're just kind of bored. You're just not really into it. You're kind of just detached, and your heart is just complacent and apathetic, and you've just kind of grown cold in your passion for the Lord. Well, we all need, we all need to have our fire stoked some, right? We, I talked to you a couple weeks ago about a burning heart. 
heart. And we need to, we need to have our fire stoked so that we can marvel at Him and give Him the worship, the glory that He alone deserves. And one of the ways that our heart grows in passion for the Lord is by considering Him, thinking about Him, giving Him our careful consideration, making sure He's at the front of our minds and at the front of our hearts. Look what it says there in Hebrews 3. It says, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. He's going to compare him and contrast him here with Moses. He says in verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. The writer of Hebrews wants the, the people, the Christians he's writing to, to understand that as much as they revered Moses and how God used Moses and gave the people of Israel the law through Moses, that Jesus is worthy of much more glory than Moses. And he wants them to understand that. And so his, his instruction is this, consider Jesus. He's worthy of great glory. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of honor. So consider him so that you will give him that glory that he so richly deserves. So we need to consistently consider Jesus so we can marvel at him. Let me give you a second reason that we need to consistently consider Jesus. So we can be transformed into his image. So we can be transformed into his image. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. I love this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter three. Notice what it says in verse eighteen, and we're just—I I don't like just jumping into a passage this rich and jumping back out. But I just wanted to show you this verse. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen. Paul writing here says, "We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord." So it means that that we are. We, we are to, to stare, to behold the greatness, the glory, the grandeur, the majesty of our Lord. It says when we do that, we are being transformed into the same image. So as we behold our Lord, then we are transformed into the image of our Lord. When we behold our Lord, we become more like our Lord. Isn't that funny how that works? It says we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So it's a process there as we grow in our likeness to our Lord, our likeness to Jesus Christ. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So you say, what does it mean to, to behold the glory of the Lord? Well, look what it says down in chapter 4, verse 4. It says, in their case, people who are blinded from the gospel, in their case, the God of this world, that would be Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So how do you behold the glory of the Lord? By looking at the light of the gospel that is the glory of Christ. And so to behold the glory of the Lord means you are beholding Jesus. You are considering Jesus. And as you behold him, as you gaze at him, as you think about him deeply, guess what happens? You become more like him. God uses that gaze upon Christ to change you. That's how you are transformed into the image of Christ. And that's why spiritual disciplines are so important. Reading your Bible spending time in prayer, being in a a small group, being in community with other believers, corporate worship. Those are so important because all of those things are not meant to just be duties that you check the list on in your day-to-day Christian life. They are meant to help you gaze at Jesus. That makes sense? These are tools 
that God uses means that God uses to keep your gaze upon Christ. Because if you keep your gaze upon Christ, guess what? You'll change and become more like Jesus. And that's really simple, isn't it? If you look at Jesus, you gaze upon Jesus, consider Jesus, think about Jesus, you'll be transformed from one degree of glory to another. You'll become more like Jesus. So, if your heart and mind is filled up with a bunch of other stuff, and Jesus is not at the forefront of your heart and mind, guess what? You're not going to change much into the likeness of Christ. You become what you behold, right? So if there's some other things in your life that you are beholding more than Christ, guess what? You're going to become like those things instead of like Jesus. And so we need to consistently consider Jesus so we can be transformed into his image. Let me give you a third reason we need to consistently consider Jesus. So we can learn from his example. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. I consider this passage my, what I would call my life verse. If I had to give you a life verse, I would give you this, this passage. I love it. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1, the Bible says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this is a reference to Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, these great uh, believers uh, who lived out their faith in, in mighty ways. Since we have their example is what he's saying, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Your translation may say encumbrance, a weight is something that that weighs you down from moving forward in your Christian life. It could be anything that becomes a priority, good or bad, a priority that's higher on the list than Jesus. So lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, which so easily entangles. Sin keeps you from moving forward in your Christian life, right? So lay aside the wrong priorities, lay aside the sin, and let us run with endurance the race that is before. So an endurance run, a marathon, is a picture of the Christian life. The Christian life is not a, not a 100-meter dash. It, it's, it's, a, it's a consistent uh, run uh, that we are in for the long haul. So he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here's how you do it. Look in verse 2. Looking to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? If you're going to run the race and keep moving forward in your Christian life, you've got to look or fix your eyes upon Jesus. And who is he? He's the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now look in verse 3. Consider him. Now this word consider is a different word than the word used in Hebrews 3.1. This word is logizomai. It's where we get the word logic from. And it means to rationally consider. It's a, it's a less emotional word. It means to rationally consider Jesus. And, and look at the context. Look in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, when you're running the Christian life and it gets hard and you want to give up, you need to give careful thought to Jesus, because he gave us an example to follow. He went through great difficulty, right? Great suffering. But when the going got tough, Jesus didn't give up, did did he? He he kept obeying the Father, went to the cross to die for you and for me, to complete the work the Father had for him. And so when we feel like giving up, when we feel like it's too difficult to move forward in our Christian lives, and and it's very hard and and we feel weary. We are to logizomite. We are to consider carefully, logically what Jesus did and then follow his example. 
And so when you fix your eyes upon Christ, when you look at Christ, when you are focused on Christ, you are seeing how to live the Christian life. We're going to get to that a little bit later in this study, not tonight, but in in a few weeks, about how Jesus showed us how to live by the power of the Spirit and how to fight temptation and all these other things. And so Jesus is an example for you and for me. But we can't learn from his example if we're not considering him, right? We can't. So we need to consider Christ to keep our focus upon him. So those are some reasons we need to consistently consider Christ. Jesus. Let me just walk you through this seven-part series, what it's going to look like. And it may take us, I don't know how long it's going to take us. It may take us longer than seven weeks, but we'll see. I may add some stuff as we go. We'll, we'll see. But part one, we're going to talk about tonight, the lion and the lamb. Jesus is called the lion and the lamb, which seem like contradictory titles, but it's beautiful how those diverse, as Jonathan Edwards says, those diverse excellencies meet in Christ. Second, part two, we're going to talk about God and man. Jesus is God, Jesus is man, fully God, fully man. We're going to talk about that reality and the implications of that reality, uh, just good Christology, things we need to talk about. Part three, we're going to talk about Jesus being gentle and severe. It's really interesting to note how Jesus treats people differently in the New Testament. It's interesting to note how he responds to tax collectors and the outcasts of society versus how he responds to self-righteous Pharisees. Totally different. He's called a friend of sinners, but he's calling these Pharisees vipers, snakes. Totally different response. Gentle, meek, severe. We're going to talk about that, and that'll be good. All right, We're going to talk about uh, part four, how Jesus was a proclaimer and a mentor. Yes, he preached to masses, but that was not the major focus of his ministry. He invests his life in a small group of, of men. So there was a, an aspect where he was proclaiming truth to, to great crowds, but he would get away from the crowds so he could invest in this small group. We'll talk about that. So he was a proclaimer and a mentor. Part five, he was powerful and yet dependent. Powerful and dependent. I mean, he's God on earth. He's telling the, wave, the wind and the waves to die down. He's walking on water. That's, that's, those are things deity does. He's calling Lazarus from the tomb. That's deity, right? Deity on display. But most of his life, I'm getting ahead of myself, most of his life was lived in the power of the Spirit to give us an example of how we can live in the power of the Spirit. Acts 10, 38 says he was anointed by the Spirit of God to do what he did. And so we're going to talk about him being powerful and dependent, uh, and how that factors into our lives, what we can learn from that. Part six, we're going to talk about how Jesus was joyful and sorrowful, and what made him joyful and what made him sorrowful. And then part seven, we're going to talk about how he was dead and then he was raised, and just talk about the gospel. That'll be fun. So those are the seven parts so far, and we're going to just walk our way through that. It's going to be an interesting study. We're just going to dig deep, take our time, not in a hurry. I don't have anywhere to go. Do you have anywhere to go? Okay, good. All right, we're going to take our time. So, let's talk about the lion and the lamb. Turn over to Revelation chapter 5 with me. Revelation chapter 5. By the way, I will take some questions here at the end. So, if you uh, have a question as I go, just jot it down in your notes and we can talk about it when we get to the end tonight. Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's only 14 verses, but we really need to see the, the entire chapter to, to get a feel for what's going on here. Uh, Revelation is a, is, is a series of visions uh, given by the Lord to the Apostle John, who was um, 
on the island of Patmos in exile because he was a preacher of Christ. They wanted him to not preach Christ. They put him on this island in, in exile in prison. And while he was on the island, God gave him this great vision. Much of it deals with the, the unfolding end-time scenario, what, what's going to happen in, in the future. And so uh, in, this, in these giving of visions in chapter 5, we see that... Uh, John is given a glimpse into heavenly worship. And look what it says in uh, Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And so John knows there's this scroll which gives us some details concerning how the, the big picture story of redemption is going to finish. How it's all going to play out. And he, and he, he can't see it because no one can open the scroll. And look what it says in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. Everyone say conquered. He's conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a what? A lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There's a sermon right there, but we'll move on. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, notice their worship's loud, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What an awesome chapter. Is that not an awesome chapter? Wow. I mean, all that's happening here. There's so much happening here. But I want you to focus on the two titles given to Jesus in this passage. He's first called there in verse 5, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lion of the tribe of Judah is the one that's worthy to open the scrolls. So when he looks up to see who the Lion of the tribe of Judah is, he sees a lamb. And so Jesus here is called a lion and he is called a lamb. What do those two titles teach us about the the person, the work, the ministry of Jesus Christ? Well, let's just dig in for a moment and take those two titles and kind of talk through them, and then we'll make some 
final kind of application in terms of what we walk away with and, and we'll be through. But let's talk about Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's your first blank, by the way. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This speaks of a couple things. First of all, this speaks of his rule, of his rule. There is no question that this reference, Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah, is a reference to Genesis chapter 49. So hold your place, but turn back to Genesis with me. I'm going to show you where this thought comes from. Genesis 49. Genesis 49, Jacob knows he is about to die. And so he spends some time pronouncing a patriarchal blessing upon his sons. And these blessings kind of serve two purposes. One, they are meant to to bless or meant to um, speak of consequences for for sin or, or past behavior or for different things the sons have been involved in. They're also meant to, to be prophetic. Uh, some of these blessings prophesy what the descendants of these sons would be all about. And look what it says in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8. Back at verse 8. He's speaking to Judah here. Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Now that's an interesting thing to say to a brother, isn't it? I could just imagine sitting down my four kids and saying to my second, uh, "Hey, Caleb, your brothers and sister are going to—they're going to praise you. You're, you're going to be—you're going to be the preeminent one among all all the the kids." And I can imagine how that make him feel, and I can imagine how make everyone the other siblings feel, right? But he says, "Judah, your brothers shall praise you." Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. That speaks of power, of victory. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah, he's going to describe him here, is a lion's cub. Isn't that interesting? He calls Judah here a lion's cub. Interesting description of his son and his son's descendants. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? So you better not rouse Judah because it's like rousing a lion. The consequences will be quick and severe because he is so powerful. And look what it says in verse 10. The scepter, the rule, the scepter is an implement of, of royalty. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, all the peoples. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying the descendants of Judah will function in the capacity of royalty. They will be ruling. And and there's going to come a time when all the people groups on the face of the earth will be be recognizing the rule of someone who's a descendant of Judah. Does that make sense? Now, how in the world is this prophecy fulfilled? Well, guess what? Jesus is a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Isn't that interesting? If you trace back his lineage, he goes back to Judah. And because Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead and will reign forever and ever, his reign will be unbreakable and all the nations one day will bow their knee and their tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus is the reason that someone from Judah will always rule and reign. He is the fulfillment of that prophecy. So it speaks of his rule. And did you notice back in Revelation, not only did it call him the line of the tribe of Judah, but in that same verse it said he's the root of David, which also connects him with royalty. 
Because from the tribe of Judah came King David. And God told King David, hey, from your descendants, there's always going to be someone on the throne. Someone's going to reign eternally from your descendants. Again, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So you can say it like this, if you look there in your notes. Jesus is the promised ruler from the tribe of Judah and the lineage of David. Jacob told Judah, you're going to have someone reigning. One of your descendants will be in charge. Hey, David, one of your descendants will be in charge. And Jesus is the fulfillment of both of those prophecies. Because Jesus, guess what, is in charge. He's ruling and reigning over the universe. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, even if people don't recognize that. The Bible says in Philippians 2, one day everyone will recognize he's in charge. The peoples, all the peoples of the earth will recognize he's in charge. So when the Bible in Revelation 5 calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, it's saying that Jesus Christ is that promised ruler, promised the Old Testament, fulfilled in the person, the work, the current reign of Christ. So this phrase speaks of his rule. Jesus Christ is in charge. When you read, he's in line of the tribe of Judah, you ought to think that. He's the king, he's in charge. Secondly, this speaks of his conquering power. Did you notice back in Revelation 5 what it said about him conquering? I had you say the word conquer to kind of highlight it, but look back with me in Revelation 5. It says in verse 5, Weep no more, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. In other words, he's proved his greatness, he's proved his power, he's proved that he's in charge because he's conquered enemies. Now here's the question. What enemies has Jesus conquered? Well, if you look there in your notes, first of all, Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has conquered sin, which is big because sin is all of our problem, right? You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Sin entered the world. The world, since that time, has been under a curse. And sin has messed up everything. It's messed up you. It's messed up me. It's messed up the created order. We're all messed up because we have sin natures. And because of those sin natures, we do things God tells us not to do. And because of our sin natures, we don't do things God's told us to do, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't have to convince you of that, right? It's like the old statement, you hear me say it all the time, who in this room would not hang their head in shame if we got to play a video of your life up on the big screen here? And everybody got to watch every moment of your life? Who in this room would not hang their head in shame? I would. I don't want you seeing my business. All right, from back in the day. All right, I don't want you seeing that. And so we need to understand that we're all sinners. Sin is a big problem, and it's so significant that Jesus has conquered that problem. He's dealt with it. Look over in Hebrews with me. Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, I know I have you turning around, turning to different passages a lot tonight, but there's some good stuff here. Hebrews 9, verse 26, the second part of that verse, it says, But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, how? By the sacrifice of himself. That speaks of the cross, right? So Jesus' death on the cross conquered sin. He paid the penalty. So if we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, he can say, I paid the penalty for you. Based upon that, you're forgiven. And if we can be forgiven of our sin, sin no longer has any power, does it? It it can be washed away by the blood of Christ. And so Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, 
went to the cross to conquer sin. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, has been conquered by Jesus, right? You remember the game, uh, growing up, King of the Hill or King of the Mountain or whatnot, and, you know, it's usually a bunch of boys up on a big you know, pile of dirt or something, and, and the, the toughest, meanest guy throws everybody else off, and he's, he's king of the mountain. Well, listen to me. We were born with sin being king of the mountain. Sin was having its way in our lives. Sin separated us from God. Sin infected every part of who we are and began to destroy us from the inside out. That's what sin does, right? But Jesus came to be the new king of the mountain. And when he died on the cross, sin had to get off the mountain. Amen? He defeated it. He he conquered sin. So Jesus took care of our greatest problem. He conquered. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what he does. That's what the king of kings does. He conquers things. He conquered sin. Secondly, he's conquered death. He's conquered death. Oh, there's so many places we could look. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me, verse 20. First Corinthians 15, verse 20. Paul writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, listen, I don't, I don't like to cue for amens. I don't like to cue you up or, you know, I don't like to do that. I just think, you know, I want, I want, you, to, I want you to amen of your own volition. But if you're ever going to amen... When you read a verse like that, you ought to amen. Okay, here it is. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you another shot at it, okay? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's great news, right? Because if he were still dead, if he were still in his grave, then he'd be a false prophet. He would be unable to save, give us eternal life, victory over sin. I mean, he'd be dead, but he rose from the grave. He's been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by man came death by man, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and, and after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, he's a conqueror, right? He's king. He's destroying all these, these enemies. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He's a conquering king. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. The last enemy. And so there's going to come a time, because Jesus defeated death, that he brings us all into eternity in that wonderful place called heaven, and there'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more disease. It'll be an afterthought, because Jesus Christ conquered death when he rose from the grave. And so he has conquered sin. He has conquered... Well, turn to, before I move on, turn to verse 54 of that same chapter. We can't, this is too good not to read. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, in other words, when, when we're raised, because Jesus was raised, we, we are raised on the last days. We, we're given brand new bodies that we'll live an eternity in. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, in other words, my old body, when I die, I'll go into the ground and it'll decay. But when Jesus Christ comes back, he'll raise my body and it'll be a brand new glorified imperishable body. So my perishable body becomes an imperishable body. He says, 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up. I like that. Swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has defeated, conquered death. Let me give you one more, one more thing that Jesus has, or one more person Jesus has conquered. He's conquered sin, death, but he's also conquered Satan. He's also conquered Satan. Colossians 2, verse 15. Let me show you this. Colossians 2, verse 15. Are you guys seeing why I had to break this up into different messages? So, can you imagine if this was just point one and a... It would have taken too long. So look, Colossians 2, look in verse 15. Speaking of him taking all of our sins and nailing him to his cross, dying for those sins, certificate of debt. I've preached on that. But look what it says in verse 15. He, dying on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, defeated sin, rose from the dead, defeated death, he put the enemy, Satan and his demons, into open shame in the heavenly realms, the supernatural realm, which is real, right? In the supernatural realm, which we can't see, it's invisible right now. When all this transpired and Jesus came to finish the work of redemption, Satan was a defeated foe. And all of, of the supernatural realm saw his defeat as Jesus ruled and reigned over him. And so, Jesus has conquered Satan. Now here's what's interesting. Over in 1 Peter chapter 5, it's telling us to be on guard because it says, Satan is a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. Right? He's always, he's always trying to pounce and trying to destroy our lives. I read a, I read a story uh, last year sometime. It was, it was really a chilling story. They had put a GPS collar tracker on a mountain line in California. And one day they decided to look up this mountain line and see where it was, it was in the area. And they began to watch his activities from the day before. This mountain line had spent the day in a in a neighborhood, in the suburbs, just walking around. You can imagine kids and, and, you know, playing outside and small pets and all of this. And this mountain lion is just walking around this neighborhood. And then at some point, he went to the local Target. And they went to the Target to find out where he was. And he was under a bush right outside the door of Target. And listen to this. He sat under that bush for nine hours, watching people walk by into Target. And I thought, if that's not a picture of Satan, I don't know what is. He's a roaring lion just waiting for the opportune moment to pounce, to destroy. That, that's who he, he's a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. But guess what? Our Savior's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Our lion, our Savior is greater than that lion. Amen? He has conquered Satan. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So the next time the, the roaring lion comes after you to devour you, just remind him that you serve the lion of the tribe of Judah and resist him and he will flee because he has to. Can I get an amen? 
I cued you again. I'm sorry. I can't help it. You've got to do that sometimes. So Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's all that this phrase speaks of, his rule and his conquering power. Because Jesus Christ rules and reigns because he's conquered all these enemies. He's the one that is worthy to open up the scrolls and to show a watching heaven how the end times are going to unfold. Awesome passage. Now, the one on the throne, the Lord says... The line of the tribe of Judah can open these scrolls back in Revelation 5. And so John looks up, I want to see that lion. And he looks up and he sees a lamb. A lamb. And there's worship around the throne about the lamb. And they're speaking of him as the lamb. So what does it mean when Jesus, back in Revelation 5, is called The Lamb of God. It it speaks of at least three things. Let me give you these three things, and we're going to close down here. First of all, this speaks of his surrender. This speaks of his surrender. Uh, Turn with me to Isaiah 53, one of the most powerful Old Testament passages, because it's a clear prophecy of the crucifixion and burial and resurrection of Christ, which was written about 700 years before Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth and walked on this earth. And it's just so powerful. I love Isaiah 53. So speaking specifically, directly here of Jesus. And look what it says in Isaiah 53. Let's look in verse 6. Verse 6. Speaking here of the, the death of Christ on our behalf. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid it on him, upon Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So, God the Father punished His Son in our place, so we don't have to be punished if we embrace Him by faith. But look what it says in the next verse. This is fascinating. He was oppressed, and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. You see... Jesus Christ could have could have escaped crucifixion. He was wise enough, savvy enough, smart enough to get out of that situation just by his wits. You remember all the times he's talking to the religious leaders, he's outsmarting them. Every time they come to him with a different issue, he's outsmarting them. He's God, right? It's not a fair fight. So he could have figured a way out of crucifixion. He didn't have to go to Jerusalem. That time period, he comes in, you know, triumphal entry. He didn't have to go to Jerusalem, but he went like uh, Luke nine says, with his face set like flint. He he was choosing to go to Jerusalem. And and do you remember when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? They come to arrest him, and Peter pulls out a sword to defend Jesus, and he cuts off the high priest servant's ear. Remember that story? And Jesus, what does he do? What's he do next? The guy's screaming, right? His ear just got cut off. What's Jesus do? He heals him immediately. And then what's he tell Peter to do? Peter, put away your sword. And what he says next is fascinating. He says, don't you understand? I could call 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000, by the way, if you're doing the math. I could, I could call 12 legions of angels to come and rescue me. I don't, I don't need your sword. I'm not, I'm not going to the cross because they're making me go to the cross. I'm going to the cross because I'm choosing to go to the cross. Which, by the way, that's pretty amazing love, is it not? Over in John 10, it makes it even more clear. He says, 
No one takes my life from me. He says, I lay it down of my own initiative. Isn't that interesting? Of his own volition, Jesus chose to go to the cross. And so when it came time for him to be arrested and betrayed and mocked and maligned and you know the crown of thorns and the scourging and carrying his cross and nailed to the cross and hanging there from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon, when it came time for all of that to happen, Jesus, who could have escaped it all, like a lamb, kept silent in obedience to his Father, compelled by his love for you and for me, he embraced the cross. Amazing, like a lamb. Didn't say a word. A lamb would just go, a lamb doesn't know what's happening, would just go and, and just be slaughtered without, without any kind of, 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 of putting up a fight. They would just go be slaughtered. And Jesus didn't put up a fight. He, he went of his own volition to the cross. And so when it calls him the lamb, you've got to think of Isaiah 53, 7. He was silent before his killers. This speaks of his surrender. He laid down his life of his own initiative. But also, this speaks of his sacrifice. His sacrifice. Look what it says back in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. Revelation 5, verse 6. The Bible says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Interesting. Standing as though it had been slain. So I don't know exactly what this this vision looks like that John is seeing, but he knows it's a lamb. There's some other interesting aspects we'll get to in a moment. But he knows it's a lamb, and and he sees enough to know that this lamb had experienced death. It had been slain. It's standing now, which speaks of resurrection, by the way. He didn't stay dead, amen? He's standing now, but he did die. This lamb had been slain. Why did the lamb have to die? This speaks of his sacrifice. Jesus Christ came to this earth and went to the cross to die for our sins. It's interesting that over in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Jesus is called our Passover lamb. When John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ walking up, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that all goes back to the picture of of the book of Exodus of the Passover lamb. Remember that story? Jesus, I'm sorry, the, the Lord was going to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery. And on the final plague, he was going to kill the firstborn throughout the land. And it was going to be devastating judgment against Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. But he gave the Hebrew people a way not to experience this devastating judgment, this death penalty. He said, listen, take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, this Passover lamb, and, and, and take the blood and put it on your doorpost. And when the death angel comes through to kill the firstborn, if he sees the blood of the lamb, he will pass over your house and you won't have anyone die in your house. You will be saved. And so Jesus Christ is called our Passover lamb. If we know him as our Lord and Savior, if we've embraced him and called his name to save us, he's our Savior. His blood has been applied to our spiritual account. So on judgment day, when God looks at us, you know what he sees? The blood of his son over our lives. And instead of judgment, instead of the lake of fire, instead of eternity in hell, he passes over us in judgment and we experience eternity in heaven. Isn't that awesome? 
He is our Passover lamb. So when he says, I see this lamb, and it's apparent he was slain, he's speaking of the cross. Jesus died on the cross as our Passover lamb so that when we uh, are under his blood, judgment passes over us and we experience eternal life. But also, this speaks of his glory. Speaks of his glory. Look how he's continued, the continued description in Revelation 5. It says, I saw a lamb standing as, it, as it, though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. The, the seven horns probably speak of his power, his might. The seven eyes speak of his wisdom. The seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth probably speak of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's, question, you know, there's different views on that. But um, seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who, who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll of the four living creatures, the 24 elders, watch this, fell down before the Lamb. So this Lamb that John sees, who had been slain but is now standing, is so awesome, so majestic, that the worshipers in heaven fall down before him. This picture of him being the lamb, slain, now standing, speaks of his glory. There's no question that the lamb who was, who was slain for our sins is worthy of all worship and praise. Heaven gets that. Listen to me. Why don't we get that? Why don't we give the Lamb the glory He richly deserves? Why don't we consider Him? Why don't we talk about Him? Why don't we think about Him? Why don't we sing about Him? Why don't we meditate upon Him? Why don't we read about Him? Why don't we consider Christ? The Lamb, slain, now standing, horns of strength. Eyes of wisdom, working in the world, heaven falling down. Why do we live our lives with such little thought of Christ? Why? This speaks of his glory. And so Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah, and Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now let me just sum it up with one sentence, all of this with one sentence. I could have saved us a lot of time, right? But here's the one sentence. Jesus Christ reigns and redeems. That's what those two titles speak of. He reigns, he's the line of the tribe of Judah, and he redeems. He died on the cross as our Passover lamb so that we might be saved from God's judgment. Jesus Christ reigns and redeems. I'm going to close with this really awesome quote from Charles Spurgeon. You know I love Charles Spurgeon, great English preacher of the uh, uh, late 19th century. And this quote is, is powerful, and he's talking about this idea that Jesus is the lion and he is the lamb. Here's what he says. We read that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, by which is signified the dignity of his office as king and the majesty of his person as lord. Like a lion, he is courageous. If any come into conflict with him, let them beware. I like that. For, he is, for as he is courageous, so is he full of force and altogether irresistible in might. He hath the lion's heart and the lion's strength, and he cometh forth conquering and to conquer. This, is, this, this it is that makes it the more wonderful that he should become a lamb. It is wonderful that he should yield himself up to the indignities of the cross, to be mocked with a thorn crowned by the soldiers, and to be spit upon by abjects. Oh, wonder, wonder, wonder that the Lion of Judah, the offshoot of David's royal house, should become as a lamb led forth to the slaughter. 
fact that the lion is our lamb should cause us to to wonder to wonder you know it's neat um, i um have read with my with my boys my two oldest uh, many of the chronicles of narnia books which are books written by cs lewis and uh they're they're fictional books but they're intended to be a, an allegory uh of 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 christianity of of what it means to uh to to uh, live for the Lord and 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 and, and the the work of of Jesus. They're they're all allegorized in these in these works, and so they're really cool, great stories. They made some movies out of them as well. Uh, but the 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 chief character in the Chronicles of Narnia series is called Aslan, and Aslan is a lion, and he's in charge of Narnia. He 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 rules and he and he reigns, and so it's really neat to to read this to my kids, and and and. The way C.S. Lewis writes, there's a buildup for Aslan's appearance. And any time he comes on the scene, my kids would sit up in bed. They wanted to hear about the lion, the lion, the lion. But in that first, the, actually the, the second book, um, the, the, the book that's the most well-known, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the lion um, has to go and be sacrificed on behalf of one of the kids in Narnia who committed treason and and, and so the lion, this big, bold, ferocious lion, dignified, noble lion, goes and allows himself to be, to be slaughtered so that this, this young boy who made a mistake could be set free from his treason and not have to undergo the punishment. The lion became the sacrifice. The lion became like a lamb. And that's a, it's a Christian allegory. But it's, a, it's just a, a picture of what Revelation 5 is all about. The lion of the tribe of Judah of his own volition laid down his life for you and for me. Hallelujah. What a Savior.